Whether you're shopping for grads, getting an early gift for dad, or just looking for a little something new or used for your shelf, you'll find it at HPB. And you'll get almost everything for an extra 20% off during the big sale at Half Price Books this Memorial Day weekend. Saturday, May 25th through Monday, May 27th. Save big in-store at your local Half Price Books and at HPB.com. Offer cannot be combined with other coupons. Exclusions apply. To learn more, visit HPB.com. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People, sending you love today and all days, but happy Valentine's Day. In this episode, it's me, DR, Maya, and Kyle talking about the news that you don't know from the past week, the underreported news, but the news about race, justice, and equity that you should know. And then we talk about book censorship in Florida, thousands of kids missing from the post-pandemic school system, whole host of stuff. And we continue our Blackest Book Club discussions with a spotlight on All About Love by Bell Hooks. Go download the full reading list now at blackestbookclub.com and purchase the book with our crooked partner, bookshop.org. Here we go. My advice for this week is let love in. You know, some people are just really, you know, we all, I think, at some point struggle with receiving love. People say good things about us and they love us and we just don't know what to do. Be okay with saying I love you too. Be okay with saying thank you. I appreciate that. Like receive love. Let's go. Family, welcome to this love episode of Pod Save the People. It's airing on Valentine's Day. We're excited. I'm Diara Ballinger. You can find me at Diara Ballinger on Instagram. Let me do my love voice. <laughs> this is Miles E. Johnson. You can find me at Feral Rapture on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> I don't have a love voice. This is Kaya Henderson <laughs> at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. This is DeRay at D-R-A-Y on Twitter. Well, we're going to start off this episode with the Queen and Yes. Red. The amazing Rihanna. It's Rihanna. It's not Rihanna, right? I think her name is Rihanna. Isn't that true, everyone? This is not the time to make <laughs> that, y'all. We, we already, well, because we, this we, morning, <laughs> I was, you know I start my day. <laughs> I start my, my day with CBS this morning with my best friend, Gail. And Gail let America know this morning that her name is Rihanna, not Rihanna. Rihanna. Because she yeah, had that, corrected that Ellen sense. many years ago. Anywho, she, I just, it, this performance for me was transcendent because Rihanna is rich. She was like, I'm not gyrating and dancing all Girl, around you the better place. Say it. I'm not going to starve myself for eight weeks before this thing. <clears throat> I am going to give y'all a shimmy. And y'all are gonna like it. So today, in honor of Rihanna, I ain't really doing. I nothing thought you said work. her name was Rihanna. <laughs> oh. Rihanna. Rihanna. <laughs> Thank you, Kaya. Rihanna. Keep it consistent. I, I'm not doing nothing at work today. Just how Rihanna took a seat during her performance, she sat herself down. Okay. That's what I'm doing today because black women and brown women shouldn't be out here laboring and doing all the dancing on the poles and stuff. For Yara is taking this to a this whole This is not what I thought we were going to talk about this morning. This, this is how right. I felt Rihanna about said, it. This work. is how I felt about it. It was just like, I Come ain't Come on, nap ministry. Come on, pause, and rest, she's B. pregnant, but you know what? I'm not talking about that woman's body today. That's her business. 
Her and the baby is her business. That's I want to talk about it. I want to talk about it. I want to talk about it. Do it. Go ahead, um, Kaya. Because it's all of our business as of last <laughs> night, as she rubbed and scrubbed up there on the stage. First of all, I thought I was up dancing, singing, having a good time. Honey, I thought it was awesome. I thought it was amazing. I thought the song list was perfectly curated. When she descended from the heavens in that hot red, I was like, yes, girl, give it all to the people. And then once she realized that she was pregnant, you're like, okay, you don't have to do too much. Just give us a little bit. And I felt like it was absolutely perfect. I thought her dancers were amazing. I thought, I have also loved that she did not have any guest performers. She was like, you're going to get this, me. No enhancements, no embellishments. Was any else, just but me. Kaya, were you nervous yes, the, that Kanye oh, was no, no, going to no, come no, no. out? Like, I really, I got, I got, I, I was, was not like, nervous ooh, about ooh, Kanye. Ooh. I was hoping that Jay-Z ooh. came out when she sang Run This Town Tonight because it would have been perfect, but whatever. I was nervous that she was on that flipping podium thing floating <laughs> in the air. And once I realized she was pregnant, I was like, first of all, I was just personally scared. And I was like, no, you could not have me floating up like that. But when I realized that she was pregnant, I was like, oh, my soul, be careful, girl. But it was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. Um, I just want to give a shout out to Paris Goldbell. I believe that's how you pronounce her name. P-A-R-R-I-S G-O-E-B-E-L. That is the choreographer yes. Come on, of, Paris. Of, 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 um, of the Super Bowl. And she's also done most of the things with um, with like Fenty. And then she has like a couple of viral dance videos of Justin Bieber's Yummy. And I think that Paris, I've always been in love with how she does things, that, does movement. She really hyper-focuses on a body movement and just does things on beats and sounds that you don't necessarily, your ear doesn't necessarily go to. And she, through movement, brings those things out. I was in love with that. And I think that no, now knowing that Rihanna was pregnant it was such a task to how do we make this thing feel like it's moving? How do we not put the um, mother at risk? And how do we also do things where Rihanna can jump in and do and 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 and, ex- and express herself through her body without you know doing something that was too crazy? And it was so good. I loved. I love 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 how how she decided to choreograph that. That might have been one of my favorite choreographed moments in a very, very extremely long time. I always love... The thing about Rihanna is she's such a millennial superstar. She's one of, like, our our last, like, millennial um, relics. Like, I definitely put give... Um, I give um, Beyonce the Gen, um, Gen X, even though we all love her. I definitely think she's, like, a, a, a superstar that Gen X produced, specifically with how she works. I'll take it. It was... And, 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 what, and, what, and what she does, I think that she's like a, like, at best a late millennial Gen X person. I feel like Rihanna, she comes on and she performs, like, you know what her performance style reminds me of? That cool woman in the Caribbean restaurant who's going to give you your food and she's going to give it to you. <laughs> and you're going to like it. And I'm not doing all of that. And we don't got that. And you and you want I tell, we don't got curry chicken. That's her swag on stage. And I think that that is so... I don't know. There's there there is something really rebellious and cool and effortless around Rihanna that makes it so hot. It's it, you you forget that she's in front of a thousand people, a million people are watching her because she makes you feel like this is normal, this is relaxed. And I think that is the energy that we most covet around Rihanna. Um, 
is that like anti showgirl aesthetic mm-hmm. um, that that um, that we just really covered. So yeah, go Rihanna! Congratulations, ASAP. One 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 Look, one. ASAP. Uh, clearly, he really. <laughs> he better hang on to that. Got, got got angels in the sky in, in the ovaries <laughs> and the uterus. Got angels everywhere. Just, just what? You all have said most of what I would say about Rihanna's performance and it was the the setup, the stage, all that stuff was amazing. The thing that I'd add is um, I didn't know that In Living Color was the birth of the halftime performance at the Super Bowl. That the Super Bowl halftime performance used to be like marching bands and sort of stuff that nobody cared about. One year, In Living Color had halftime programming on a different station. They got all these famous people to host and da da da. So everybody stopped at halftime, switched stations, and watched In Lemon Colors Super Bowl halftime show, and then did not come back and watch the Super Bowl. Like Super Bowl viewership fell for the second half because people were so enthralled with the other station, da da da. And the next year, they brought Michael Jackson to do oh, the know. halftime performance. Okay. And that is the history of the super performance. And of course, it was a black superstar that created this entire moment that saved the NFL from a ratings drop that like made this moment. And remember, the artists don't get paid for this experience. They even often have to pay themselves to like get all the bells and whistles, even though the NFL does front money, like to do all the things they often have to pay. But it was Michael Jackson that created the genre of Super Bowl halftime performance that we know, but it was in living color. How about that? that? Inspired it. You know, all I heard, all I heard was black people started a thing, and years later, Listen. Well, we want to take a knee. Mm. It's, it's 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 too much and it's too controversial. But I I love that story. We should have like a segment called um, "The Blacker You Know," like the more you know, the blacker you know. <laughs> Was it like a fist that comes up? That was good, good content. Are you, um, Shirley Ralph also um, performed? I didn't see, I didn't anybody see, see Shirley either. Ralph perform live. <laughs> okay, I, I, saw I saw it, but I didn't understand the context with it. Like, was that a replacement for the, the like, what, like, what was the context of her performing? So that was actually the, it was the anniversary of the first, it was like the anniversary of the first time that the Black National Anthem was ever sung in public, like in on like TV. So this was like the 23rd anniversary. It was like to the day. So oh, that's like what that. she that sang. Like, that's what she did. She sang the Black National Anthem, but it was like the 23rd anniversary, like to the day that it was ever sung, like on a major Amazing. stage. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I just wanted to honor that because she, I did see the clip on, um, you on not YouTube, but on um Twitter, and she did phenomenal. She looked phenomenal, but I was um didn't know the like the context with it, and it's a little you know. So yeah, I got I always got two brains. I'm also like, do not give a Shirley Ralph who you know we love her. She's having her moment in. She's been she's having her moment in the brightest part of the sun right now. She's been in the sun, but the bright, brightest part of the sun right now. And it was like, oh, you know what we gonna give? We gonna give Shirley Ralph in a good old red dress. Makeup great, national black anthem. I'm like that's that. Like we still understand the where the NFL is when it comes to um, yeah, they when, trying to when it comes us. to racism and anti blackness. I'm like, don't think that you're gonna <clears throat> blind us with 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 one of our favorite they, stars. They also had Babyface singing "America the Beautiful," which um, it was. I didn't. 
Um, I mean, I think, I guess, I, I think they sing America the Beautiful at multiple Super Bowls in addition to the to the national anthem. But I was a little underwhelmed. It was because he sang America the Beautiful, what seemed like a little bit of it, and then they cut over to the country dude singing the national anthem. Um, and that, the country dude's rendition of the national anthem was really beautiful. But I just didn't understand. I felt like they were trying to pack too much, be too many things to too many people, maybe. Mm-hmm. It was it was giving here. Yeah, be yeah, quiet. yeah. <laughs> <Don't>. <laughs> Are y'all good? Are y'all fine? Yeah, it's a little. I you know as I love I love a song. I love a dance. I love a spectacle. I love all those things. But I think I also have to love those mm-hmm. things critically because often. Um, those things are used for Black people as maybe a replacement for, um, like a like a replacement for the change, the more systemic, deeper changes we want. Yeah, it's so a, it's like it's let them eat cake. Face. Go, let go eat say cake, something. Right? Yeah. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. The other historical thing with this Super Bowl is that there were two Black quarterbacks. Now, I don't know these young men's names. So Jalen Hurt and Patrick Mahomes. Come on, girl. Come on. <laughs> Thank you, Kaya. Thank you, Kaya. Because they're both adorable. Adorable. But that's really what kept me watching after Rihanna's performance. Because I watched the Super Bowl with the room full of gays. And so didn't any nobody knew what the hell was going on. Okay. And that performance, that performance of, ended, and we know. were all wait, like, wait, na- hold na- on. Now, now what are we supposed to do? I was going to say, this stereotype that wait, keeps on coming up. It's not, I was first a, of all. My first job was a scorekeeper. People don't know this about me. I was a scorekeeper all throughout. <laughs> not people don't know this about me. All throughout high school, I was a scorekeeper. I am, I know sports, I know football, and I know I, softball. I was going to say, I was just with probably eight gay men uh, a couple weeks ago, and all we were talking about was football so or uh well, none, of, none, of them, none of them were in the room i was in and listen i'm a collegiate athlete but hmm. still i have not collegiate i don't i don't know you so black i did know a li- i did i did know a little bit like i think i was the one explaining the most because people were like what's a sack what's oh, this Lord, what's that today. i was like why don't we just watch a movie or something <laughs> we're, we're gonna, we're gonna have- i will say <laughs> This is not black, but the other part of the story that I thought was cute was yes, the, the, the Kelsey's. The, the Kelsey's. Okay. I that was yeah, sweet. yeah, yeah. The Jason Kelsey's. and Travis, killer Trav. Let me tell y'all something. Travis is invited to the cookout. I'm just saying. Uh, <laughs> killer, no. killer Trav, no, no. killer Trav, <laughs> like killer no. Trav. I'm telling you. Killer, killer oh, trap got the swag, uh, y'all. <laughs> the mother was adorable. Like she was, I saw an interview uh-huh. and she had like the split one jersey shoe. and the one shoe. Uh-huh. I was like, come on, mom. What? It, Wait, what, what are how y'all wild even, it was? Two brothers about? in the what Super Bowl, each on opposing teams, right? So when you're the mama, who do you cheer I for? See. So the mother had a jersey right. that was half Kansas City, half Philly. She had oh, a jean jacket, half and half. She wore one shoe. Was for a different team she was you know it was very cute Aww. and she was like a vibe so she was like doing interviews and stuff and you know when 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 the super bowl was over she like hugged the one son and was like you did a great job the other son she's like congratulate you know it's wow, just like that's she cute. just was a, she was like very much still a mom like it no glamour no glitch she's like my boys are right. playing proud of them it, it was like very honest and i was like come on whoever decided to make this a whole content stream 
did a good job. Um, and then the, I guess like before we like close out, um, I do want to honor that in Rihanna's performance, she was honoring Andre Leon Talley oh, at the very coat. end in the red leather. And the red leather come oh. out. And I, I was thinking about it because I, I, I certainly was on Christie's mm. website. I was on I was on Christie's website, mean. the auction house, and I was I was like, you know what? I might I need I need to go get something. And I was looking for that because they had the animal print red um Norma Kamali that he um that he owned. And I was like, well, where's the red one from the picture that was his homage to his mentor, um uh Diane um Freeland? Like, where's that one? And how much is that one going for? And could I get my hands on it? Did they give it to a museum? All behold, mm-hmm. Rihanna. Work, 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 work her way into that, <laughs> into, into into snagging that. And it was so beautiful. And I just think that, like, when it comes to Rihanna and Andre Leon Talley, of course, I think that Andre Leon Talley's contextualization in the moment and poetization of what Rihanna, how she looks in that beautiful yellow gown, mm-hmm. I think that oh, that... I remember that, Miles. That yeah. just as much helped it be iconic. I think mm-hmm. that if he wasn't there articulating in the moment how important that was... I don't think that we would have um, seen... I think we needed help contextualizing what we were seeing, and Andre helped that. And then, of course, all the things that Rihanna's been able to do in fashion and beauty, that moment helped her because it just solidified her. And I just love that she honored his life and his... Um, and, what, and, what, and what he did in, in, in her life. It brought, it brought me joy. Okay, we are so excited to continue our Blackest Book Club programming. We partnered up with Reconstruction and Campaign Zero to launch an amazing book list for our listeners. Curated by me, Deray, Diara, and Kaya, download the positive people Blackest Book Club reading list at blackestbookclub.com right now. So this week's book is all about love by Bell Hugs. I thought because, A, it's you know, Black History Month, and we're, we're doing this program, but then also because it's Valentine's Day, this was such a good intersection of both of those things. Bell Hooks is just a premier writer. Everybody knows that I I covet Bell Hooks. I really feel like she expanded my consciousness in so many different ways. Every single book to me, she touched she ch- touch points different sections. It just, like, illuminates things um, in my critical consciousness about the media, film, sex, etc. Love, all about love, is, <laughs> I, I think, probably one of her most uh, popular pieces of writing, but also one of her most powerful. And I would dare to say, my most provocative take about this, is that it's one of the few books um, outside of, uh, like, like a, like a Cornel, um, Cornel West text that has really, to me, prolonged and continued the legacy of Martin Luther King, of really intersecting a love politic, a feminist politic, a a, a racial justice politic. It really takes all of those things seriously. I remember I was reading this book, crying, thinking about, you know, you you, you go through it all. Like, my daddy ain't love me enough, and that's why the boyfriend ain't love me enough. And I thought that was love, but it wasn't love. You go through all of it with Bell Hooks. But what really stopped me and really transformed my life, I talk about this with DeRay a lot, was chapter 13 on divine love. I thought it was so brave for somebody who has such um such esteem in intellectual feminist theory to dive into talking about the ethereal dive in talking about the divine and that's just something that does not happen specifically as we get later and later and later in feminist 
um, theoretical text. And I felt that that was so brave of her doing. One of my favorite, I, um, I, I screenshotted one of my favorite uh, moments of it, moments of that chapter, rather. Woundedness is not a cause for shame. It is necessary for spiritual growth and awakening. <laughs> that was a sentence. I can remember how strange it seemed to me as a child when I read this story over and over in my big book of Bible stories for children that to be wounded could be a blessing. To my child's mind, woundedness was always negative. Being able to protect oneself from hurts hurts inflicted by others was a source of shame. In Coming Out of Shame, um, Gershon Kaufman and uh, Lev Raphael contended, shame is not is the most disturbing emotion we ever experience directly about ourselves, for in the moment of shame, we feel deeply divided from ourselves. Shame is like a wound made by an unseen hand in response to defeat, failure, rejection. At the same moment that we feel disconnected, we long and embrace ourselves to once more feel reunited. Shame divides us from ourselves just as it divides us from others. And because we still yearn for a reunion, shame is deeply disturbing. Shame about woundedness keeps many people from seeking healing. That just shook me because I never thought about what is happening internally inside of me and the and the how and how most of the echoes of what's happening internally inside of me are shame, are are based in those things and how she intellectualizes things. Cause I love a Brene Brown and an Oprah Winfrey and I love a woo woo woo. But something about a grounded intellectual bell hook saying, no, there is intellectual genius theoretical backing towards this and she and she and she examines love and shame in these um topics scholarly she 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 cites her sources she contextualizes with her own experiences she she she's done the research sometimes through her own relationships and it really contextualizes great and then in the same chapter she's talking about angels and god and spiritual practice and how Black women and Black communities need spiritual practice and anything that we're doing that 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 does not invite spiritual practice is a dead works. It doesn't, it doesn't, it won't make sense for Black people. That is a part and a dimension of what helps us stay radical. We need that. Not we want that, not it's cool. We need that. And it's our job as a generation to maybe recontextualize it and continuously recontextualize um, spirituality and faith and ancestors for each generation, but we need to always do that work. And I think Bell Hooks was doing a really brave thing with this. And years later, I remember during the um, pandemic when I would go for my little walks alone and people, everybody had to be, you know, everybody was in the park and everybody had to be six feet away from each other. When I tell you I saw this little red book everywhere in Prospect Park, <laughs> I was seeing it everywhere. And I said, wow, I can get choked up thinking about it because, of course, um, Bell Hooks passed away. But I remember thinking about it and saying, wow, Bell Hooks is being read throughout this Brooklyn Park. I can see it in people's tote bags. I can see it on the train station. Her message is really being spread. And, you know, I always wanted to start an Instagram where I take pictures of every single time I see All About Love, All About Love in the Wilderness or something like that. And just to honor the fact that her message is being spread. And I think in her lifetime, I don't know if she really understood how many people were reading Bell Hooks, how Bell Hooks was still doing the work and reaching more people because of social media, reaching more people because of um, conversation. I don't know if she experienced it, how it really was. And yeah, 
I, I, I can go on all day about how much I love Bell Hooks and about all about love and how it's a necessary, necessary read, but I won't because, you know, all about love taught me to share. <laughs> so I'm gonna share this this this, this conversation. Come on, segue. Come on, segue. Um so I'll just say as an organizer, uh Bell Hooks really changed my life. It was the first time I'd heard anybody uh write about white supremacist capitalist patriarchy I'll never in college but <laughs> imperialist right I missed it I was like okay Bell I remember when I first started I'm like okay Bell what's going on then I'm like who Dre you didn't know so um there are two two things I want to say about this book one is that she reminds us that that the greatest act we do in the world is with each other right like community is the best that we will ever do being in relationship and partnership with each other is the best that we will ever see it is what feminism is blah, blah. so like that was a big part of it but as an organizer um so much of the work that I do day to day is rooted in loss it is death it is it is oh I was called to the street because somebody was killed and I continue to be called because of that. And she helped me understand um, the the reconciliation with death as an act of love. And in um, in All About Love, she writes, love knows no shame. To be loving is to be open to grief, to be touched by sorrow, even sorrow that is unending. The way we grieve is informed by whether we know love. Since loving lets us let go of so much fear, it also guides our grief. When we lose someone we love, we can grieve without shame. Given that commitment is an important aspect of love, we who love know we must maintain ties in life and death. Our mourning, our letting ourselves grieve over the loss of loved ones is an expression of our commitment, a form of communication and communion. And when I think about the work that I do that wakes me up every day, my father called me when Tyree Nichols was killed and he was like, Dre, how do you do this work? And I think about the work of organizing as an act of love and a reminder of my commitment to community and my commitment to say and do the work that is called um, called love in practice. And, I, and the beauty of the book was that I knew the feelings well, I didn't have the language. And what Bell did was Bell gave me the language for the thing that I was experiencing. And what we say in organizing, right, is that people often have the experience before they have the language. What Bell did was give me the language. I'll riff off of that, Dre, because I, you know, my context with Bell Hooks was my African-American studies program at McAllister College. McAllister College is a small liberal arts school in St. Paul, Minnesota. Now, when I got to McAllister, they did not have an African-American studies department. And so um, a group of us majored in it. We had to design the major, which ended up being actually having two majors at once. Um, And we also... um, you know, led some organizing work to get more Black professors tenured at McAllister. But when we started, when the, when the program was was kind of getting on its feet, it was fascinating because, you know, the canon was very much W.E.B. Du Bois, Up From Slavery, Manny Marable, Juan Williams. Like, it was, it was very much a Black man's perspective on the political history, social history of Black people's. And oftentimes I felt like, to DeRay's point, I was having all these feels, right? I was learning these things. I was in classrooms that were predominantly white and I was having the feels. And I think it was being exposed to writers, thinkers, academics like Bell Hooks because it was so instructive and it was so heartfelt and soul felt. And it gave you a construct to be able to understand what was happening to you in that moment and also how you can how you can protect yourself 
um, and, and essentially have tools to, to exist through what you were learning, but also what you were trying to be in the world. Um, and so it was, you know, reading Bell Hooks, reading Ashada Shakur, reading Angela Davis, that I really started to find like my, my, my grounding, um, in, in Black studies. And so this book in particular, I found it to be, you know, courageous one, but also, again, so smart, because I think it's also understanding that like love is an ethic. And how are we practicing it, right, as a people, but also, again, a people that has to deal with this exterior world. So, Miles, thank you for this. You know, we love Bell Hooks. Um and she's so special to so many of us and has come into our lives at, at very different moments. It's been like decades now she's um, been influencing so many of us. So thank you for bringing this. Love, love, love. Um, I, I feel like I want to echo DeRay's um, comment about having the feelings and not having the language. What I think she does in this book um which is super powerful is help us understand that the construct of love is not just romantic love, right? It is, it is organizing, it is friendships, it is how we think about and react to power and domination and, and just love in all of its different dimensions. And I think, you know, it is um, somebody, I, I read something on social media that said, Something like the books that are being banned are the books that you should be reading. And I think it's no small coincidence that in the whole um, debate about the College Board's first African-American AP history exam, the question of whether Bell Hooks is part of the canon is one of them. And I think it's because she's so relevant. It's because she's so prescient. It's because um, she is so intellectual, Miles, that whether she's included in the College Board co course or your McAllister, you know, major or whatever, um, Bell Hooks is somebody that we all have to encounter as Black people if we want to call ourselves conscious. So thank you for bringing us to the Blackest Book Club ever. This show is the Blackest Book Club. I'm going to tell you. Honey. Okay. Listen. Listen. We need to be on tour next year. Libraries and bookstores around, around the world. That'll be a child. How is it going? That'll be a five a five location tour. Yep, so go check out our Blackest Book Club reading list at theblackestbookclub.com. At the link, you can download the list and make a purchase in support of the cause. We designed a limited edition Blackest Book Club apparel collection featuring a range of designs and colors just for you. Stay tuned this month as we grab a book from the list each week and spend time digesting together. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals 
and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, And we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. Miracle Grow is simply the best. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher. And you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. 
but we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. saying, well, geez, I'm hearing a lot of Miles' voice. I thought the same thing, too. You know, you never know when you're producing something, how it's going to sound, and I'm and I'm getting tired of the sound of my own voice. However, I have things to talk about, so we, we <laughs> talk about bell hooks, and now we got to go into my other love. It's, it's, you know, it goes from Black, radical, queer feminism to fashion. Those are my, those are my two heartstrings. Um, I didn't get to talk about it a couple of weeks ago, but we did experience a death in the fashion community by Paco um, Raban. So when it comes to surrealism and when it comes to fashion, the surrealist fashion designers are so integral to expanding what other people who maybe even consider themselves not into fashion are wearing and also recontextualizing beauty. So what do I mean by that? I mean, when somebody puts on a really um, avant-garde, strange garment or somebody chooses a very uh, um, different model, East Saint Laurent with black models, Paco Rabanne with, um, with, uh, with black models as well, so that was seen as like left of center in in, 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 a, in a specific era, when somebody decides to do that, then that trickles down to what people in their everyday lives see as beautiful. That trickles down to what other people take risks. So even if you are traditionally beautiful, am I going to succumb to what society says I need to do? Or am I going to take my own risk? And I truly believe that there is these avant-garde, surrealist fashion designers that give us more room to breathe in beauty and in fashion and in, and in glamour. So it can be something that we can all participate in healthily and not, um, you know. I was gonna say Kardashian League, <laughs> but keep it, keep it, keeping it very, keeping it very um, healthy and keeping us expand, um, expanded. Paco Rabanne is one of the um, pioneering fa- um, fashion designers when it when it comes to that. He was actually best friends and really good friends and competitors with Salvador Dali. Salvador Dali was noted as saying that there's only two great surrealists in Spain: me and Paco Rabanne, which is like a huge, huge, huge honor. When, when you look up Paco Rabanne's fashion designs and choices and runway shows, you'll see that he has dressed some beautiful, beautiful black models and has really put black women in the context of space age. It's literally, if we, when you see the images, and this is not to disrespect the, the literary icon I'm about to, about to say, but when you see the images, it's really like the fact, like when you see a black woman dressed in space age pocketeur, it really makes you think, oh, this is what Octavia, but this is what the characters in some of Octavia Butler's or Samuel Delaney's text wear. I really, like. I really remember that my first interaction with those texts and with that literature, I was picturing, literally picturing Paco Rabanne outfits and some of the things um, that they were writing about because that was my only context for black people in fashionable things that were also futuristic um, was because of him. Um, I'm trying to think of a 
current pop culture moment. Oh, Cardi B at the Grammys, that good metallic um, uh, chrome outfit that she wore with the headpiece, that was Paco Rabanne. Um, Naomi Campbell, you can put Naomi Campbell and Paco Rabanne, Iman and Paco Rabanne, you can put all these Google images um, and you'll kind of see the aesthetic that he's, um, that he has garnered. If you go to your local church, the good one, the mega church, and you take a whiff in the air where the men are, what is that scent? That is one million. <laughs> <laughs> and if you and if you sniff a little harder underneath that note of one million, there's another um scent, and that's usually a victorious or uh or or victory. So yeah, so if you have not seen it, you definitely done smelt it. And if you haven't done either, then I implore you to go explore it. Um, yeah, I wanted to bring this to the podcast. I was really sad that I didn't get to do it the other week, and I love just getting people to think differently about things that are sometimes um, coded as frivolous or feminine or queer and you in and, and pop culture because usually those things are seen as um, unserious and not influential but we often know that sometimes those things could be the most influential things and I think it's good to honor people who really did it right he died at 88 um, I walk life well live I am married to somebody who is Mexican and Cuban but grew up in Spain. And so Paola and I spend a lot of time in Spain, in Madrid in particular. So, you know, I'm like, I'm spending so much time in this place. Let me learn something other than the, you know, the past colonialism. We all know that about Spain. Um, But also understanding that, you know, Spain had a dictator for a long time. Um, But what came out of the end of Franco was all of this creative revolutionary, beautiful content, art, um, all of it. So, you know, Pedro Amoldovar is like this brilliant filmmaker um, who was, you know, centering the lives of trans women and, you know, LGBTQ people, um, but in the, in, the, in the early 70s. And so I think when I think about Paco Rabanne and when I think about, you know, kind of the 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 artists of that time it just it's just exciting it's exciting what they create i think is so um yeah miles to your point futuristic and it's just it i i've just been such um such a fan of it and what i didn't know about paco Rabanne is that okay so he his father was a Republican colonel who was executed by Franco troops during the Spanish Civil War. His mother was the chief seamstress for Balenciaga, um, for Balenciaga's first couture house. And so they ended up, she ended up moving, she ended up moving her family to Paris, which, you know, the rest is sort of history for Paco Rabanne. So it's just, you know, again, all of that that Franco history, I think is tied into so many um, of the great artists and, and creators um, out of Spain. Um, I, like many people in uh, who grew up in the 80s, smelled Paco Rabanne before I <laughs> saw him. <laughs> you know, if your dude didn't have some Paco Rabanne cologne, uh, then... You might want to rethink that thing. Um, and so it was It was refreshing to learn um, that he was the first designer to stage Black runway models. Um, 
and and to look at his futuristic designs um it's really just inspiring and then you look at what everybody else is doing these days and you realize it ain't nothing new under the sun so thanks for bringing this to the pod miles um this was really really this was a learning experience I'll just say two things. I love that uh, Paco Rabanne started off as an architect. I just love people who like sort of art in many places. And I'm always fascinated by people who have pseudonyms. I love that his birth name was not Paco Rabanne, that he like chose Paco Rabanne as a name. And I just like the, the, it just so fits the idea that you like make your thing. Like he just made up you know, he said he he lived many lives. He knew Jesus. To, I love it. I'm all about it. I'm like, that is reflected in the clothes. And like, I love, love, love the pseudonyms. Just like Toni Morrison. I love it. I like that level of creativity and like to go out in the world in that way is cool. Well, um, my news this week is about a significant problem in education that not a lot of people are talking about. When we think about what happened to kids during the pandemic, we are seeing a lot of conversation about test scores going down and how learning didn't happen and learning loss. But what we aren't talking about is how thousands of kids are missing from school. There was a recent analysis done by the Associated Press, Stanford University's Big Local News Project, and Stanford professor Thomas D. And they found that an estimated 230,000 students in 21 states are missing from public school roles. Now, These are not kids. They didn't move out of state. They didn't enroll in a private school. They didn't switch to homeschooling. These are kids who are literally just disappeared. Um, And sometimes it's because, you know, families are still afraid of COVID or um, some families are experiencing homelessness or they've left the country. In many cases, though, um, online learning just wasn't good for kids or... Um, some people have, some young people have found jobs. Some young people are just depressed. Many young people were having terrible experiences in the schoolhouse, even before the pandemic, the pandemic just exacerbated that. And they were like, you know what? I'm out. I'm not going back. And this article actually, um, shares a few stories of young people who basically are, have just opted out of school. Um, 230,000 kids is a big number, but it is probably nowhere near the number of kids that are actually missing. Um, Overall, public school enrollment fell by 710,000 students between 2019 and 2022, the main years of the pandemic. Private school enrollment grew, but only by 100,000. Homeschooling grew by 180,000. That is a huge statement um, where parents are like, I can do this myself. I don't have to send kids to school. Um, But 230,000 is nowhere near the delta between that 710 and those 280,000 kids who went to private school or homeschool. And um, the analysis doesn't include data from 29 states, including big states like Texas and Illinois. It doesn't include ghost students, which are students who are still on the rolls, but they're absent from class. Um, This is a huge problem. In California alone, 152,000 students missing. In New York, 60,000 students missing. In in Louisiana, 19,000. North Carolina, 12,000. 
And so the total is likely way more than 230,000. And these are kids who are out in the world, families that are in the world who are going to show up in other systems because they are not getting the support and the services that they need. As you can imagine, this problem is even more acute for students with disabilities. And we have not been talking about this, but we're going to start talking about this next year when all of this ESSER money, the, the funds that the federal government has put into, poured into school districts to support um, the transition back from the pandemic, those funds are going to run out next year. And school districts are going to have to contend with the fact that their budgets reflect far fewer kids. And for people who don't know, we are funded on, our schools are funded on a per pupil student formula where you basically get money for the students that you have enrolled. And so when you lose 150,000 students, that means that there's going to be huge budgetary cuts in California, huge budgetary cuts in New York and Louisiana and North Carolina. Um, and that's when we're going to start talking about these missing kids. Many school districts right after the pandemic went out looking for kids, knocking on doors. Many created support systems, providing laundry services and stuff for, for families who were experiencing challenges. But all of that has sort of dried up and withered away. And um, shout out to Stanford and the Associated Press and Professor D um, for bringing this data to light because um, these are kids who, these are kids and families who we are responsible for um, and who, you know, we're going to have to reckon with one way or the other. You know, as as somebody who worked in a school system and, and had to help, you know, get kids to come back to school and that whole process, this blew my mind. Like, I just didn't realize there was this many kids unaccounted for. I knew that there's going to be a dip. I didn't know that there were that there were this many kids that we literally just didn't know. Didn't We didn't know where they were. Where, like, I just, and as somebody who worked in school systems, two big school systems, this actually really surprised me. So I'm interested to see what will pop up. Cause I remember in Baltimore, you know, and I don't know if it was like this with you, Kyle, but we were like making it up. Like the strategy to get kids come back was not, you know, uh, wasn't brilliant. It was literally like going to people's doors, knocking on, like it, it wasn't like some, it was very old school organized and, you know, the teachers union even, even did it with us because we all had a vested interest in kids coming back. So um, this was fascinating. I didn't know the numbers were this high. It really blew my mind. Yeah. Um, I think the undercurrent at this uh, teaching for me, I was really excited to hear what um, you and DeRay had to say about this because of y'all's background. But also my the first thing that came to my mind was what happens when like, when 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 uh, these kids are like are missing and and it makes it, it I, my mind couldn't help but go to literacy and crime and jail and all these other things that happen when kid, when kids don't go to school. And when kids aren't learning, and and um, I think that I forgot the exact words that you used at the end of what you said, um, Kaya, but that we we they will have to be accounted for, and that will it have to be reckoned with. That's what keeps on echoing in my head is that this is going to have to be reckoned with. And when we see 
um, escalations in, 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 in illiteracy or crime or whatever. We have to go back to this. We have to go back to the, um, uh, what, what's happening right now. And that's what's most scary to me. Yeah, I thought, you know, we are, we're outside and we're acting like, you know, the pandemic is over. The federal government has now declared that the pandemic is over and everybody is, quote unquote, back to normal. And there are so many repercussions from this pandemic that we have yet to confront. And this is just one of them. I guess the other thing I'm trying to figure out is how do we how do we support this? Right. Like. I got a little time on my hands sometimes. I live in New York City. Like, are there opportunities for people to volunteer? And I don't even know what that looks like in schools. But I feel like, I don't know, for many of us, you know, we're living, we're living in communities that we did not grow up in. It is, you know, it, I guess that maybe is like, maybe one of the things I want to accomplish in 2023 is figuring out how to get more connected with this community, not the the, the community that is now predominant here. I live in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. You know, even our people in office aren't people that grew up here, right? So it's like how to get plugged in to the community that is that is actually this community right because we all have public schools in our in in our neighborhoods right like how do we how do we get plugged in how can we be supportive and if it's not appropriate to be engaging you know with folks directly how can we support financially so i don't know i guess i i'm my head goes to how do we start to problem solve for folks who are outside of the system And what does that look like? Yeah, Diara, I think, I mean, because of lots of student privacy laws, the release of information to volunteers is restricted. But I do think that what this, the question that this causes us to ask is what what happens when our one size fits all school model doesn't fit all? Um, What Mm -hmm. happens when young people who are struggling with deep, mental illness, we we don't have, I mean, we don't have supports for them in the right way. And I feel like the pandemic just began to open up that conversation, even though we should have been having that conversation for a long time. I think the other question that it forces us to ask is what school, kids don't just learn in school. And so how do we create opportunities for kids to learn in places and spaces where they feel the most comfortable um, and how do we get that to count in school? Because if a kid doesn't feel, and families, I mean, these families in this article are like, I don't trust the school system. This one parent mm-hmm. is willing to give up her kid's special education status, services that are required to support this young man just so that he can be transferred to another school because she doesn't trust the school system that she's in. We have to confront the fact that these spaces are not made for many of our young people and start to design and build something different. So my news is about good old Mississippi, about Jackson, Mississippi, or about the state house. And, you know, I feel like I say all the time, I'm rarely shocked at it. And then something new happens. I'm like, well, White supremacists got me again. And in what the, so Jackson is the capital city of uh, Mississippi. So the state house is, is in Jackson. And you already heard the previous stories where they didn't invest in the water. There were problems with having clean water in Jackson. Uh, but now House Bill 1020 would essentially create a separate court system and an expanded police force 
in Jackson, which is the blackest city in America, that would be controlled by all white people. Jackson is 80% black. Uh, and as I said, it's the capital city of Mississippi, and it's home to a higher percentage of black residents than any major American city. So this bill would allow the white chief justice of the Mississippi Supreme Court to appoint two judges to oversee a completely new district that covers the city, one that includes all of the city's majority white neighborhoods and some other areas. The white state attorney general would appoint four prosecutors, a court clerk, and four public defenders for this new district. And the white public safety commissioner would oversee an expansion of the Capitol Police Force, which is currently run by a white chief. There have already been criticisms of the Capitol Police Force because they have killed people in Jackson with very little repercussions. And here's the thing. There's already a functioning court system. There's already, Lord knows, there's enough police for a lifetime There's because there's a local police and there are police who are the Capitol Police that ostensibly report to the legislature. And it's just wild to see this in 2023 when people say everything goes back to race. It does. Uh, And remember, you know, in this moment, the Mississippi Constitution gives the legislature the authority to make, quote, inferior courts, uh, courts that are lower than the Supreme Court of Mississippi. And this is how they would be doing it. Mind you, the representative who is proposing this lives 120 miles away from Jackson, is not a Jackson resident, nothing to do with Jackson. But they do want to control where the Black people live. And I brought this because it literally blew my mind when I read it. I read this too, DeRay, and it was so outrageous that I just had to put it down. But here we are talking about it on the pod. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, you know, um, I have been to Jackson, Mississippi on numerous occasions. I feel honored to do work with the Jackson public school system and... Um, The crime rate in Jackson is incredibly high. And like a lot of urban places, um, especially post-pandemic. But like, I don't, like, you can only, I don't know, like, there's no other way to think about this. Like, there's no generous explanation. There is no positive spin. There is no nothing. Like, there's no way to see this as helpful the only way to see this is as colonial and whatnot. And I thought, um, you know, the you've heard the av- adage, be careful of, if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. Um, but I thought there was an interesting piece in here about how in 1890, there was a Jim Crow era constitution that was written in Mississippi to strip voting rights from Black Mississippians. And one of the representatives said, this is just like the 1890 Constitution all over again. We're doing exactly what they said we were doing back then, helping those people because they can't govern themselves. This patriarchal, um, you know, colonizing approach to um, to managing people in Jackson, Mississippi, the blackest um, place in the, the blackest city in the country, is reprehensible and um and it ain't the first time and it won't be the last time but this is what these super majority of republicans can do in states where they don't need not a one democratic vote to pass legislation and so <clears throat> i don't think we've paid appropriate attention to how in these state houses there are far too many cases where 
you know, a, a counter vote doesn't even matter because the Republicans have a supermajority. And this is what it looks like in Mississippi. I was going to say old school racism. I really had not nothing really profound to um, add to what was going on, but that it's old school racism, old, old school um just like kind of like white supremacist tyranny. And it's wild that it's just like, I, I like, I think that the bigger thing that is in my head is just around Mississippi. Since I've been on this podcast, excuse me, since I've been on this podcast, um, we've mentioned Mississippi so many times and I'm like, we need all eyes on Mississippi. We're like white supremacy as far as, um, as far as it's, um, erasure as far as us really improving it's measured by how well mississippi's doing that's 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 where it's measured at it's not me- measured by what's happening in um in, in coastal neoliberal bubbles it's not what's be, it's not being measured in any in any other places if, if, if the blackest place is not is not free then ain't nothing free if the blackest place is being controlled then it's then we're then we're still controlled so mississippi if 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 it ain't goddamn Mississippi like Nina Simone said, then you know, nowhere's blessed for black people in 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 America. And I really believe that. And I've and I believe that since I started this podcast and see and seeing and reading how much of these how, how much white supremacist domination is just um is is just uh running wild in the laws and legislation happening in Mississippi. And it and when you look at how Mississippi ranks nationally. Mm. Girl, say On it. anything. On anything. Healthcare at the bottom. Gambling addictions at the top. Can't, people can't find a job. The economic environment is terrible. The, the lowest average starting salary. Terrible quality of public schools. Terrible quality of early education Former system. football players stealing welfare uh, money. Listen. Listen. You know, nobody wants to retire there. There, seventy percent of young young adults in Mississippi, seventy percent of young adults are ineligible to join the U.S. military because they fail academic, moral, or health qualifications. They have the highest number of at-risk youth. Like it is when you go bar to bar in terms of what makes a state functioning, innovative, democratic, equitable, Mississippi is at the bottom. So what what is the plan here, white legislature? Are you are you just going to squeeze all the resources to the top? Because in all actuality, there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of poor white folks who are suffering from all of these things too. So I just is it just a a, a the the just the deep commitment to white supremacy at all costs. Is that, is that what's happening here? Because you're, you're, you know, the people at the top, white folks at the top, your pockets aren't going to get any fatter because nobody wants to come there and do anything. So I just, I guess it is, it's just, that's how absurd racism and white supremacy is, is that you go to these links. It just don't make any sense. This doesn't make sense. Doesn't make any sense. Yeah, white supremacy isn't 
necessarily genius or intelligent or even made to design to keep a human being functioning. You know, um, white supremacy cannibalizes white folks all the time. White supremacy is 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 the the institution that is is, is to survive on itself. It's to make sure white supremacy survives. So it doesn't matter who needs to die, what needs to happen, as long as long as um, uh, as long as the idea that whiteness is the best happens. And I feel like Mississippi is just ground zero for um, those things happening. There's nothing that we, and also there's just nothing that we can advocate about Mississippi that won't be better for everybody else in America. There's nothing that we can get Mississippi to do, or 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 to push Mississippi to do that won't that won't help every single um person. So the idea that like when you say like if you if you're helping a a poor black trans disabled person, if you're if you're if you're helping that person, then everybody else benefits. Same thing when you were talking about the um the poor white folks in Mississippi and all that other stuff. I'm like, yeah, everything will be better <laughs> when you when you when you when you talk about. Um, deplatforming, destabilizing white supremacy, everything is better. And everything is better. Water gets cleaner. Air, like, like you know, everything, places get safer. Everything gets better. Well, speaking of racist, nonsensical people in power, I'm going to move this conversation to DeSantis. And... Now, what is happening with the amp- the the application of, you know, these laws and policies he has on the books now about challenging critical race theory? So I saw this and I just, wow. Because now we're going to see, I think, Takaya's earlier point around COVID and seeing the implications and the impact. Like, now we're going to start to see how, like, all of this really comes to play um, with all of this um, anti-critical race theory um, stuff. So Rob, Roberto Clemente. Now, for those of you, you Afro-Latinos listening, you know, Roberto Clemente is like Martin mm-hmm. Luther King, okay? <laughs> this is serious. He is Afro-Puerto Rican. He Black. Okay, he's a black man. He so basically he has this this book, The Pride of the Pittsburgh Pirates, and it's by Jonah Winter and Raul Colon. And it's just about Roberto Clemente and his rise in 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 baseball, right? Um, he was super, super accomplished in baseball, but he also was just like this magnificent person um who led all these humanitarian efforts, who was very vocal in the civil rights movement. So in Jacksonville, Florida, this is Duval County, which I did look up. It is 31% Black. Evidently, Roberto Clemente's book is too controversial or it raises issues of race and discrimination that is too early for those students. I think it's like K through the third grade, if I remember it from the article correctly. Um, Yeah. Books must align with state standards such as not teach K through three students about gender identity, sexual orientation, not teach critical race theory, which examines system systemic racism in American society and public grade schools and not include references to pornography and discrimination, according to the school district, because evidently talking about race is like talking about pornography. I don't know what's wrong with these people. So um, that means 
like in this process, there are these certified media specialists who are reviewing about a million and a half book titles. Um, and they, they've approved about 2,800 books, but they also are not approving books. And one of those books is Roberto Clemente's book. Another one of those books is about um, Sotomayor, who's the first, <laughs> first Puerto Rican woman appointed to the Supreme Court. And the Latino Justice, this organization that it's the Puerto Rican Legal Defense and Education Fund, They've been blasting the school district in Duval, um, talking about, you know, how this book is so important to folks' identity, right? And not just to young Afro-Latino students and Black students, but like to to all students and how important this history is. Um, Learning about his achievements, his pride and his Afro-Brica identity and his struggles with racism and discrimination will provide needed insight on historical conditions in the U.S. and inspiration for the majority of Black and Latino student population in Duval County schools. So the, the other interesting thing is here is when his son was interviewed, Robert Clemente Jr., he said about his dad's story, his story is his story. He went through racism. It's something that can be changed. But obviously for the younger students, if it's something that they feel is too much for them, they might be able to utilize a different book with the same story, but it's framed differently for them. For that age group, that is. I thought that was fascinating. And I'm not going to like hark on like whether he's right or wrong, um, but it is just an interesting discussion for me. And the 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 light bulbs kind of went off in my head because who's been leading the movement, obviously, on pushing back around um, these policies are Black people. But I think what we're going to start to see is some of the intersectional issues that come because this is going to impact not just Black people, Black American identifying people, but also Afro-Latino people, Afro-American Latino. Like it is it is going to be so expansive that people that we didn't necessarily would think of being impacted like Justice Sotomayor will be, right? So it's just... I don't know. I just wanted to bring this to the pod because I found it to be so, one, terrifying, honestly, just terrifying. Like, I just, it, it's terrifying. But then also how how students will actually be impacted and their identity shaped. And then people that we hadn't expected would be looped into this, um, whose books won't be able to be be used in these schools. Y'all are about to get a dose of revolutionary Kaya because this is some BS. (laughs) This is complete and total trash. And like, again, this is not the first time that people have denied us our history, us telling our stories. These are stories of empowerment. They don't want you to read about Afro-Latinos who broke through the color barrier and, you know, changed baseball while at the same time being social and politically active, right? They don't want you to read about the first Latin American, you know, Supreme Court justice or Celia Cruz, the queen of salsa. And like for as long as they have been trying to deny us the opportunity to read and know who we are, we have been resisting. We have had freedom schools and citizenship schools. Our people... during enslavement times actually taught each other how to read under the penalty of death 
because it was so important. And these are the same people that tell us that we don't value education, that we don't, you know, like this is bananas, right? And Ron DeSantis is doing a masterful job. And I I don't know, I feel like I want to go to Florida and tell me where to sign up for the revolution because this is trash. This is why we started Reconstruction because we cannot rely on schools to teach our mm-hmm. children, our history, and our culture. We cannot rely on them to show Black excellence, to show Black intellectualism. We cannot. We have to. And and other other ethnicities don't either, right? The Jews are not waiting for school to tell their kids, you know, their history or their culture or how amazing they are. Korean people send their kids to Korean school. Greek people send their kids to Greek school. And we have to send our kids to schools that are populated by people who love them, who believe in them, and who are going to make sure that they know what they need to be whole, complete people, to be out here in these streets fighting every day. You, listen, child, don't get me started. Okay, I just got, okay, let me throw this Mm. coffee out because Kaya is here. (laughs) She's here saying some stuff and it's just, her screen Mm. is brightening it up. She's just here. The one thing I do want to say, because I like was listening to so many, um, people discuss it just has been obviously just been a topic um on like political pundit shows and stuff like that is and one and, and i'm not saying that this has not happened i'm just saying that i did not hear this perspective happen is sometimes when we talk about the books that are going to be in the school or be taken out of the school it's always how good it is for um you know, the, the Afro-Latina or Afro-Latinx um, uh, child to read about Afro-Latinx uh, heroes and the Black child to read about um, Black American child to read about Black American heroes. And, um, and obviously, yes, that is very true. But also, <laughs> and this is what I was talking about a little bit earlier about how white supremacy cannibalizes itself. It is fantastic for white kids to read about other heroes you better that do not preach, look like Miles. them. It is not it is it is not good to be in a narcissistic intellectual bubble where you mm-hmm. are centered and where everything that's that that is that that is what um creates a culture of acceptable sociopathic nature you better in my say opinion. It. Yep. You better say it. acceptable you know, sociopathic I, 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 nature. I, 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 He's talking about what well, I have to, I, I'm going to let you say what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and, 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 and I feel like that is not, that's not necessarily a perspective that I always see people talk about and how it's healthy for all kids to learn about all diverse different people who are doing different things. There are so many. That's why even on this podcast at the big age of 32, I still push myself to bring Paco Raban Raban and other people who are outside of um, my race and my experience to the podcast and to contextualize it through a Black queer lens, but also know that there's other people doing things with other perspectives that, that, that helps me feel bigger. And then it's, it's in their uniqueness a perspective and a journey that I actually find it's in that subjective hero's journey that I find the universal truth. It's in that subjective experience of how, how they got over that I find a universal truth about the human spirit, mm-hmm. tenacity, vision, and, and, and the human, and the human condition. And that is healthy. And that is what makes kids not go yes. pick up guns. That's what makes kids not go to school and um and and, and 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 say horrible things because they are conditioning themselves to see other people as human. 
and as actual people. And when you stop doing that, you are asking for violent, um, uh, violent events. You're asking, be it literal violence or be it just the casual, intimate, parasocial violence that that um, that happens when kids are drenched in white supremacy. That that that's what I gotta say about this. It's just a little ridiculous. It's good for all. It's good. It's good for all. It's not just good for the black kids or the, or the Afro Latinx kids or the um, the Jewish children or the. It's good for everybody to know about everybody's history, mm-hmm. so we can stop, so so we can actually um, use race and culture for what it's meant for, which is the, the beauty of diversity in the human race. To to recognize the beauty and diversity in the human race, rather. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultrie and mixed by Charlotte Lands. Executive produced by me and special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson. 